Love that theme. The theme to Barney Miller. Abe Vigoda, Steve Landisberg, Jack Sue, and of course Hal Linden as Barney Miller. One of the great shows, I think, of all time. Very underrated show. Why am I talking about Barney Miller? Well, it's Barney Miller. It was a cop show. We're going to talk about cop stuff. Joining me here on the podcast, which you'll hear, it's a very good, fun conversation I had. Well, not really fun. It's actually a horrible conversation because we talk about all the all the bad stuff that's going on in this country right now as far as law enforcement goes. Uh, talking to Paul Violas, who's had a long history of being in law enforcement, four decades, in fact, of being in it, and he has his own group. It's called the Violas Group International, and... Uh, talking about whether it's cybersecurity or regular security out in the open. And boy, do we kind of need to talk a little bit about that and the rise in crime that we've seen, not just this year, not just last year, but the last several years. And what are we going to do about it? So we're going to talk about that in this conversation, as well as promoting his book, which is called Safeguarding America, the blueprint for keeping you and your family safe. So it's a really Good conversation. We cover whether we're talking about not just the book, but crimes, petty crimes, the rise in crime, what we are going to do about it. We talk, yes, about January 6th. We talk about guns. We talk about Antifa. I'm not allowed to talk about that. Remember, Antifa doesn't exist. Yeah, that's right. I've been told it doesn't exist. So we go over a lot of a lot of that in this conversation. By the way, if you enjoy this conversation, you get a chance to hear it on Patreon. If you're listening to this on Patreon, thank you for subscribing. If you wanted to hear it way before you are going to, it's on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. So what I do is every week I put out a free podcast on Wednesdays comes in in the middle of the night, so you wake up in the morning and, ooh, look, I got my next podcast, my next Check Your Brain from Tony. And, uh, yeah, so if you, but if you want to subscribe, you get four podcasts a week. Instead of four a month for free, you get four a week from me. Guests, my rantings uh, on politics and social politics and everything, sociopolitical stuff and uh, but not just that. I talk about old fast food restaurants. I talk sports, everything, and whatever's on my mind. Sometimes comedy. Sometimes uh, I, you know, wax nostalgic of the days of me working in radio. I think a lot of people enjoy hearing about that. So, if you want to check it out, go for it. It's just five bucks a month. You could there's a ten dollar tier and a twenty dollar tier. Go for it. But uh, yeah, just five bucks a month, and you get as many podcasts as I can put out in a month. So about twenty or so a month. Does that sound good to you? Because I think it sounds pretty good. It sounds like a pretty good deal to me. If you're a fan of me, you'll enjoy my podcast. So, But anyways, again, that's patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R. Without further ado, let's give it up for Paul Violas. It's the Check Your Brain podcast. It's Tony Mazur here live with you. Not really live, but uh, live with Paul Violas right now. And uh, Paul is uh, somebody who, uh, you know, we've had on our uh, my day job, my, my radio job, a, a number of times, whether he was a correspondent with the CBS News and uh, his own uh, with the Violas Group, and also the author of uh, a number of books, including Safeguarding America, which I have in front of me right now, The Blueprint for Keeping You and Your Family Safe. Paul, thanks so much for doing this. And first of all, before we get into other topics I want to get to, talk about Safeguarding America, because one thing I notice uh, when I was reading the book, 
the the difference in the last couple of years as opposed to where it was maybe, say, five, six years ago is the lines are blurred between the dangers of the outside world and the dangers of the online world. And it just kind of seems that it's a little bit of a – the lines are starting to get blurred and we don't know the difference between the two. A lot of people – because a lot of people live – online now like their whole lives including now their work in the last year plus has been online talk a little bit about that and and about the book well you know what tony first of all it's a pleasure to join you um the book is is really the result of a lot of people writing in when i had the radio show with cbs uh of, of people just writing in whether it's social media or into the website or into my own email uh just just discussing the things that keep them up at night i mean as simple as that and and what was fascinating is that when you, when you look at what's in the book, the subjects that, that I wrote, at, wrote on um, came from people across all demographics. And what, what it showed me, especially, and, and you know this from doing live radio, when you get a chance, which is the power of radio, you get a chance to talk to people and get to know people across the country. And what was incredible was the consistency of the concern across all demographics about the things that literally keep them up at night. So what I did was... Um, I put this book together based on all the different subjects of all the shows, and but made sure that each subject had the solution set in it. Because what I found from being in the media the last 10 years uh, is that we do a very poor job at providing solutions and we do a really good job at scaring the hell out of people. So Safeguarding America really incorporates the things that keep people up at night, but more importantly, the things that they can incorporate, take ownership over themselves, to make things better and safer for themselves and their families. One one of the sections I looked at was talking about the passwords and the fact that people are getting scammed so easily nowadays. I was over the weekend, I was hearing a family friend was talking about one of their friends getting scammed. And again, it's an older person, it's a senior citizen, it's an older baby boomer, I think. And they were talking about getting a, I think it was talking to somebody about getting a grant and having to pay taxes on the grant, which red flag number one, obviously. But right. uh, I'm talking to somebody over in the UK who's going to give me a $100,000 grant, but if I only get so-and-so $20,000, and then I'm hearing other people talking about Amazon or Target gift cards, they're getting... so these scams are happening way more often and they're not new. People were doing this back in World War II days where the husband is uh, is away or murdered in uh, World War II and they go to the widows at home and basically are scamming them uh, with various uh, terrible projects around there. So this isn't new. It's just people need to start reading up on their literature and trying to stay a one or two steps ahead here. Right. Well, you know what? Tony, the internet, and, and I know I'm dating myself here, but I remember very clearly when there was no internet. Um, and it gave us a lot of really good things, and it also gave us a lot of really bad things. Crime and criminals live on opportunity. And, and from the beginning of time, criminals have lived in opportunity. What the internet did was it created this, this bedrock of criminal activity where literally it became close to impossible, close to impossible to identify who's behind the curtain. And what it did too, when you talk about scams, is it amplified to such a degree the amount of opportunity that criminals have at this point to seek out vulnerable people. You bring up the elderly. You know, I talk about that in the book, but look, I remember, God rest her soul, my, my, my mother-in-law got a phone call and typical scam, and you probably heard this a million times, 
typical scam. Someone called her at the house and, and said, pretending to be my son, and said that, that he was stuck and he needed money to get out. And she said, it doesn't sound like you. And he says, my throat hurts. Please help me, grandma, whatever the case may be. She was smart enough to put, God rest his soul, my father-in-law on the phone, who, you know, put a foot up this guy's, you know what, and cleared that straight. And they didn't get scammed. But most people do. In fact, eight out of 10 of those are actually successful. So the scams, Tony, nothing new, but what the internet did, again, it created this highway of opportunity that we still haven't put our, our, our arms around yet. You mentioned vulnerable people, and with this rise in crime that we're seeing in the last, uh, well, especially year, but I think this goes back to about 2014, the rise, the numbers are starting to rise again. And the vulnerable that we're seeing, a lot of elderly, a lot of uh, Asian Americans in San Francisco, New York, who are just getting bludgeoned for basically no reason right now. And right. that's kind of one of the big things I wanted to talk about was this rise in crime that we're seeing, and it's the petty crime. So you have the wannabe district attorney in New York. York, who says, uh, you know, we're not going to prosecute petty crimes like prostitution, drug use on the street, uh, petty theft from a Walgreens. We saw the video a couple of weeks ago of the person on a bicycle going through Walgreens with obviously with mask on, you know, because it's COVID. Uh, but funny how you can conceal your identity behind that mask as well. Just going in there, riding a bike, stealing a bunch of stuff, about $999 worth of stuff at a Walgreens. And then leaves, and the Walgreens employees are basically told, if somebody's shoplifting, don't do anything about it. And right. nothing seems to be getting done with this. And it it's really seems like it's the opposite of what we saw about 25 or so years ago with Rudy Giuliani and the broken windows policing, where the turnstile jumping was prosecuted, and you did start seeing that crackdown in crime. It seems like we're just doing the opposite of what we were doing pre-1994. Well, we are, Tony, but you know, and you bring up some very powerful, very poignant points, and I'll touch on each one of them. At the end of the day, there's one word that comes into play here, and it's accountability, or a lack thereof. We just don't have it. We simply don't have it. But you know, also, when you look at that macro issue, of crime and where this is coming from. And you really speak to something that I, I believe most people are leaving out of the equation. We keep hearing about defunding the police. We keep hearing about police reform. That is not what we need. Now, I'm not saying that our law enforcement doesn't need to have a good solid look at it for its proficiency and representation in the communities. Clearly it does. Do we need to look at use of force? Yes, we do, but it's a lot deeper than what's on the, on the surface of that. But one thing you bring up, is reform, but it's not police reform, it's criminal justice reform. So let me explain myself. In the great state of Ohio, where you sit right now, your legislature is legally charged to create legislation. It's their job. The district attorney is an elected official in each district. They are elected by the people to what? Prosecute the crimes the legislature has passed and enacted and put into law. It is not their job to arbitrarily decide what crimes they're going to prosecute and what crimes they're not. Where the hell did this come from, Tony? I mean, I start looking at this, you know what, I'm shaking my head, right? Because I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a second, this goes right to the subject of making illegal immigration legal. Sanctuary cities, what the hell is that all about? You know what a sanctuary city is, Tony? It's legally violating federal law, that's all it is. Call it what you will, that's what it is. Where is crime coming from? If we look at the core of this, you can, you can go to your grandfather, you can go to your dad, 
as public servants, as police officers from the city of Cleveland. You could ask any of them or anybody else. The bottom line is we removed enforcement out of law enforcement. We replaced it with wokeness and political correctness. So now when everyone's sitting back, USA Today, you probably saw this, Tony, USA Today came out today, 77% of America says we need more police. Well, here's the news flash. You just don't press the button, Tony, and hire more police. Number one, who wants the damn job now? I wouldn't. I mean, nope. my nephew's my nephew's a cop in Charlotte. I'm proud of him. You know, I try to talk him out of it. Five years ago, I tried to talk him out of it. Who wants the job, Tony? Yep. Do you? Yep. Do and, I? And my my grandfather was a police officer in Cleveland from 1957 to 84. So you're seeing a lot of the 1960s riots, the Huff riots, the Glenville riots in Cleveland. Then my father takes over in 81 to 05, and he, you obviously see the rise from the. Uh, the crack epidemic of the 1980s and the designer pill drugs of the 90s and everything. So he saw a lot of this. And, and then, of course, during when my midway through my father's career, oh, there's this Rodney King situation with All filming right. police officers. And, and I, so whenever anyone's asked me, did you want to follow, follow in the footsteps as a maser of being in the police force? Absolutely not. That's why I'm doing podcasting and broadcasting right now. It's much safer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? It makes more sense in a lot of ways, too, because when you speak about, you know, professionals like your grandfather and your dad and your dad and I seems like we were in at the same time, uh, basically at the same exact time. I started in 1980. But we did see a lot of change. And you talk about Rodney King and Rodney King's a good example. I was a 29 year old young CEO of one of the nation's largest police academies at the time. Rodney King came, and let's call it what it is. We see this brutal beating of this guy. You see a bunch of cops pounding him with PR-24s, and it's the emergence, Tony, of the video, right? The video evidence goes viral. Everybody's looking at it. Think about when that was, right? So now let's switch gears. And, and I look at use of force then and use of force now. What happened then and what's happening now? The difference is post Rodney King, we made changes relative to not just use of force, but police recruitment, police selection, police training. And you know what we did, Tony? We spent money. We spent money going into the community and said, hey, you don't like what you see? Fix it. Become a member of the police department. And you could ask your dad and your dad will tell you that during that time, we as a law enforcement community spent a bunch of money getting more people from the community to join the police department. We did address use of force. We enacted the use of force matrix, which is used across the board today. But I'll leave this one thought with you on that particular subject. Is it use of force that's out of control right now? Or is it the people that are enacting the, or, or let, rather not just legislating, but are in leadership positions in our cities today that are telling us what laws to enforce? And that's where you get into the police chiefs end up being politicians, where the police chief is acting in, along, you know, has to go into the communities of talking to special interest groups, is talking to the mayor. And the police, and I noticed this in the last year, and this is one thing that really, really bothered me over last summer, where we saw, um, you know, you, you, well, let's go back to the spring, too. So the lockdown started happening in most major cities, most areas in March of 2020. And they continued on for the most part until about June, until the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter riots. Well, before then, you had a lot of these police chiefs going in and breaking up 
Easter services, Passover, um, any type of church service, and, and arresting, whether, whether they kept them in behind bars for a very long time is a moot point. They're arresting rabbis and pastors because they're holding services without a mask or social distancing. Yet two weeks later, you have violent riots in the streets of Minneapolis, Kenosha, Los Angeles, uh, New York, Cleveland, all, a lot of these big cities, the, the things were happening in Atlanta as well. And these police departments, it's not necessarily the, the officers, the individuals themselves, but it's the chiefs and the departments that are told to stand down, let this happen. And not only right. that, kneeling in solidarity with the protesters, because they're not just protesters, they've now crossed the line of rioters, and they've become violent rioters. And what am I hearing in the media, and what am I hearing from these police chiefs? Well, these are mostly peaceful protests. And I'm like, then you know what? In my opinion, if if you're out to protect the COVID restrictions that are put in place by uh, unelected bureaucrats, as opposed to, I don't know, trying to find a way to stop these violent riots that are going on, then maybe some departments should be defunded. I, I, I don't know. I'm I, That's just my opinion on that. Well, Tony, look at this and let's break down what you just said. And you're right on point. Is it the police chiefs? Now, for all of your viewers and all of your listeners to know kind of the infrastructure of a police department, the police chief, the police superintendent, the police commissioner, the chief executive officer of that police department, let's look at that. They do not make decisions. And, and most people think they do. It is the city manager. It is the town council, the county commission. It's the mayor. It's who they report to that will tell them what they can and cannot do. It's who they report to that tells them what budget to have and what line items of that budget are approved or not approved. So when we start looking at what happened, and let's, let's call it for what it is, when we start looking at what happened with the Floyd incident, this was an opportunity that we should have taken as a country to examine problems we have, and we didn't do it. We failed violently. What we did was we did exactly what you said. What we did was we placated people and we allowed them to burn down people's businesses. Look, there isn't anyone that's listening right now, whatever listen in the future, that if has an IQ in two digits that could agree with that. You are not constitutionally guaranteed the right to riot. So do not mistake the disparity, the gross disparity, if you will, or the lack or the ambivalence of what protesting and rioting is. We are guaranteed the right to protest. We should celebrate that because it's our voice. It's our constitutional right to scream at the top of our lungs to disagree with what we see in government. That's okay. You are not entitled to break the law. You are not entitled to destroy cities. You And police departments, we actually, we talk about lack of leadership. We have leaders across the country, Tony, that said, you know what? Let them burn the police department. It's just a symbol. What the hell are you thinking? It's just a symbol. Really? Is that it? So what you in essence did is you told people across the country, it's okay. It's okay to do it because we know you're upset. It's okay to do it because, and now we have the ACAB. Have you heard of them, Tony? ACAB, all, all cops are bastards. All cops are bastards. And I'm, I'm doing an interview the other day and someone, someone calls in and they said, well, this shouldn't be taken personally. Are you a moron? It shouldn't be taken personally. How could you not take that? You just call me a bastard. 
And now you say, well, you know, it's really not you. This is what I heard, Tony. Well, you know what, Mr. Violas, it's really not you. It's not law enforcement. It's really just more the system. Well, they call it the system. But when you start attacking police like this, you are talking about a group of people that barely make over minimum wage, that risk their lives every day for people they don't know and they do, and, and that don't even like them. And they're willing to never see their families again to protect those people. So don't come and say that that's not personal because it sure as hell is personal. Yeah, they mentioned systemic. It's a nice word to buzzword to throw around where they say, well, no, it's not the individual. It's a systemic problem. But then if that's the case, then it's like if you're participating in that system, you're by proxy a racist over it. And they they get this assumption that cops are waking up each morning and going, how many black people am I going to kill today? How many how many am I going to? They don't. I, I talked to a couple of cops about this, and they said that the most interesting and most closest to reality cop show on television was probably Barney Miller. I agree. Because Barney Miller I was not, it was all in the, it was in the precinct. It wasn't necessarily, they're pulling out guns. It's not NYPD blue. It's not Dennis Franz or David Caruso. It's more so the paperwork and the politics that go on inside the precinct. People, but they have this vision that cops are just waking up each morning thinking who they're going to pick off for sport. It, it's, it's not only is it wrong, it's very dangerous. And it's emboldened, in my opinion, I think a lot of people into getting to that feeling of, oh, if I kill a police officer, if I harm a police officer, or I back talk a police officer, I'm actually a hero because of it. And it's, it's completely wrong. And it's being uh, promulgated and it's being encouraged by the media, in my opinion. Well, of course it is, because we got away from journalism. We went to sensationalism, which is which was really one of the main reasons why I wanted to be out of contract with CBS or any other network, mm -hmm. because I don't want to be looped in to the sensationalism that we're portraying. You touched on something. And most people when I say most people, Tony, I'm going to say nine point five out of ten don't want to talk about. It. So let's talk about it. racism. So I want to invite everyone that's watching and listening to, to work with you and I to define racism. Let's get simple. What is racism? Is racism white supremacy? Is that what racism is? Because that's what we're saying. We're teaching that in our schools. We're making and influencing young children, my grandsons, 10 and eight, you know, they wanna shove that down their throat. So my question to everybody, Tony, what is racism? And we need an honest definition of that. You brought up the book, right? So here's the book. Is it any good? The hell do I know? I got to read it. How do we teach our children what racism is if we're already telling them that it's white supremacy victimizing black people? Have we had atrocities in this country? Is it reprehensible, beyond reprehensible? When I look back and I see how Black people, the American Indians, a lot of people in this country were treated. There's no question about that. You can't defend that. You can't defend it. But today we're talking about it. What is racism? So I invite everybody to answer that question. Because if we can have a, and here's the thing, Tony, if we can have a fact-based conversation about that, then I think we can go somewhere. I don't know if we can, though. No, because it's now under the umbrella where, I, this is what I've always said, Dylan Roof was the ultimate example of what a racism, white supremacy of a, a white person going into a black church and shooting them up because they're black. 
but then we also include under that umbrella is Don Imus on the radio saying nappy-headed hoes as a joke. And we mm-hmm. say, so we're going to call them both the same thing. And the problem is, is because we are a heavily online culture, everything that everything can be racist, everything can be sexist, everything can be homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, everything under this umbrella. And we don't ask questions. We as a society don't ask questions. And now it's getting to the point where, yeah, you can attack a cop because me being the hero, uh, they're the bastard, obviously. And me doing so because people live online way too much. And that's where the defunding the police uh, conversation started up last year. And it went too quickly to abolishing the police. That why do we even need a police force? Why, you know, why can't we just? It started out as let's allocate those resources to social programs, and then it mm-hmm. became well, why don't we just get rid of the police altogether? Now the backtrack is happening because the crime rates are going skyrocketing, and it's looking bad upon mayors like uh, De Blasio and like Lori Lightfoot and like uh, uh, Garcetti in Los Angeles and others. And so now they're backtracking, and now they've said, oh, no, no, it's the GOP because we put a small thing in our stimulus bill, our spending bill, about funding police departments, and because the GOP said, no, it's the Republicans who want to defund the police. So they're just gaslighting at this point. Of course they are, but you know what? Look, every great dynasty in this world, in the history of our world, was destroyed by one thing, and it was division. And you could look at the Roman Empire, you could look at the British Empire, you know, the sun never sets in the British Empire and the United States. And we are destroying ourselves. Hell, we don't need China. We don't need Russia. We're doing a good enough job all by ourselves. It's rotting from the inside out. And which is exactly what's happening, Tony, because we're destroying our own history. And in essence, we're annihilating our own future. We're picking sides. I look at this and, and I sit back and I ask myself, how many politicians do we have? And here's a good question. How many politicians do we have that are more concerned with doing their job than keeping their job? I mean, it's, an, I think it's a fair question. Mm-hmm. It's a fair question, right? So if we're really concerned about doing our job, are we willing to have a fact-based conversation? Fact-based. Can Are we willing to sit at the table? Tony, can we sit at the table? Can we do a town hall in Akron, invite everybody in, Everybody bring a dish, a covered dish. We'll sit down and eat and we'll have a conversation that's fact-based, not opinion-based, because I don't care about opinions. That's why I don't watch TV anymore, because I want facts. I'm a fact guy. So let's talk facts. Can we? Do you think we could do that, Tony? No, be- because now we're, we're informing people that statistics, this is where we get into that conversation of equity and equality, because now statistics and, and math, and it's now become racist. It's become offensive. So we can't bring facts to the table in a lot of ways, because it might look disproportionately bad on other groups, even if it's not trying to be. And so we just don't we just don't bring it up anymore. We can't. Well, we can't have what? that. Remember, remember, we used to talk about we need to have an honest conversation about guns. So then we say, OK, let's have an honest conversation. Well, if you're a gun lover, then you want children to be murdered in school and you want that. I'm like, then we're not having an honest conversation. You're just getting an opportunity to try to insult me and you don't want to hear my point. Right. Well, look, has a gun ever gone off by itself? The answer is no. Tony, if I took a gun, I put it on the table. That thing is never going to discharge by itself. It's a paperweight. Never going to do anything. But let's look at the genesis of this conversation if we're going to talk about that, right? Why did our forefathers want to have a constitutional amendment 
for the right to bear arms. It was to allow the militia to protect their homesteads against invasion. Now, do we have a constitutional right to bear arms? We sure, we sure do. And is there anyone that should be taking that away? Absolutely not. Now, do I think that we have a valid and reliable system, Tony, right now to screen those that, that are allowed to carry a gun? No, we don't. I mean, the pro forma check the box background check is meaningless. Most, when you look at gun owners, most gun owners, the vast majority of gun owners are responsible law-abiding people, you know? And they are more for gun safety than anybody else. They're not the people that are doing the drive-by shootings. Let's talk about that. They're not the people that are executed. We just celebrated the, the, the anniversary of five police officers that were executed in Dallas, right? Now, are we talking about the color of the shooter versus the color of the cops? No, we're not, because it's not sensationalistic. If the colors were reversed, would we be? There's most certainly we would be. We'd be lighting vigils and protests, and you can see all the guys out there that normally stand up and the talking heads. But what we have, Tony, is we have a division right now where Republicans and Democrats are more concerned with their parties than being American. And we, we lost sight on how powerful division is because we have the right ultra right, we have the ultra left. You have the skinheads, and now you've got, you probably see them, Tony, the NFAC. Have you seen the NFAC out of Atlanta? The not effing around coalition? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> if, if we if we continue down the, this pace, 86% down in police applications, if we keep reducing in ranks, forcing people out, not bringing people in, communities are not going to get policed. We're going to leave it up to these groups to police communities. And when that happens, Tony, as God is my judge, I will tell you right now, we don't come back from that. Yeah. Well, last thing I wanted to ask you about when it comes to police, because it's something I was thinking about when we were talking about defunding. And this is not my exact belief. This is just kind of like a brainstorm. What if, if we can't find police officers who want to join some force or the officers who are around, whether they're, you know, they reach their 20, 30, 25 year, 10 year, uh, or if they are in a couple of years and then they go off and start their own, you know, LLC, their security force. Is there a possibility that we could defund police and we just start our own private police force? Kind of like how when you go to Disneyland, and again, this is, this is just a brainstorm. It's kind of a devil's advocate. But when you go to Disneyland and you shoplift from one of the stores, who is going to put you behind bars for a little bit at the Disney jail? Is it Anaheim police or is it Disneyland police? Well, it's the Disneyland. Why can't we have like a Disneyland in Akron, Ohio? Why can't we have New York City police, but it's not affiliated with the government? Is there an opportunity for privatization of police forces? And I think that's a really good question because it's a groundswell right now. and People are talking about that. I see it with our firm and the amount of people that are coming to us as a firm asking for personal protection or added security at their residences or added security when they're traveling or protecting their kids when they're alone. I see that a lot now over the last 12 months, more now than since I've been in private practice. So there's no question about that. The problem is it becomes really a socioeconomic issue. Who can afford that? Who can afford to pay for private police? Because what you don't want is you don't want the person that does not have the training, that doesn't have the experience walking into that situation. Then you're a million times worse than you were by not having anybody. So the question is, 
it becomes, it comes down to economics. Do we want to really create a system where that really it's going to be the wealthy, the people that have the money to pay for that will have their private police? Look, but in essence, look what we've done with that, Tony, right? We have communities, look at Ohio. You have communities, very affluent communities that pay for their own police department. Those cops get paid better than mostly every place else. They have great benefits. They work just for that city. And really, the only thing they do is pull people over for speeding. Yeah, that's about it. How much crime is there in those cities? No, not much. Right. Right. So we've we've gone down that road with a mixture of public-private partnership where more of a tax base can afford their own police. My point being is, if we were to go down that road, which I don't think we'll ever get there, but if we would go down that road, what we'll see is really the greatest dis- the, the greatest display of the disparity in the socioeconomic classes that we have in our country. Because who can afford it will get it. Who can't, well, you'll get whatever's left over. That's a good point, uh, Paul Violas here on uh, here on this podcast. Paul, I, I you know I got to ask you about something because uh, we haven't talked. Uh, we as a society haven't talked about January sixth in six seconds. Um, but one thing, you know, we keep hearing about it all the time. And yes, the visuals were bad. Yes, we all know about the security breakdowns. And we all and, and, and the blame game is going out there. Whose fault is it? Is it Trump's? Is it this and that? They've, he's been banned from social media because of it. But on the other end, because we're talking about the BLM and the, the ACAB riots, and they were also mixed in with Antifa. And you don't even hear anybody talk about Antifa. In fact, Joe Biden said at the last debate or one of the debates last year that it didn't exist. It's just a theory. Right. It's just an idea. Antifa is an idea. And then the other way is, well, of course, shouldn't we all be Antifa? We're, I'm an anti-fascist. You're an anti-fascist. So technically we're Antifa. But what that is, is obviously it's a gaslighting term to say that it doesn't exist, that there is no centralized form of Antifa. Yet... If you want to really go back into the roots of it, especially in America, it goes back over 20 years. Uh, I was reading this in Jack Posobiec's book about Antifa, <clears throat> that it goes back kind of to 1999 with the Battle of Seattle, and then it's morphed over time into the Occupy Wall Street protests from 10 years ago, from 2011. The thing is, they don't care as much about the economic impact, because again, just like the Tea Party, I think Occupy Wall Street had a good point at the beginning, and then it just got taken over by all the other groups of you know, what eventually became Black Lives Matter and everything. And then now you have Antifa that is essentially, in a lot of ways, a the violent, uh, the militaristic wing of a lot of these left-wing progressive groups. And the response to it, whether you're in Portland, you're in Seattle, uh, some of these other black blocks that are around the Chad, Chaz uh, situation last summer, is, no, it doesn't exist, doesn't happen. And it's not brought up in mainstream media. It's only brought up, oh, what are you, QAnon that you're talking about, or Tucker Carlson, or you Fox News. Those are the only areas that are able to talk about Antifa, but the rest of it is, no, it's just an idea. Talk a little bit about what you found out in some of your research about this and how dangerous it truly is. Well, Tony, let's just talk facts here, right? Like we're doing. Antifa is a militant group. It is what it is. Antifa's mantra. I didn't make this up. They're the ones did. Antifa's mantra is one thing, by all means necessary. That is a militant group. They are well-funded. For some reason, no one wants to admit or disclose who's funding them. But when Antifa shows up, Tony, how much do you think it costs? Another great question for all your viewers and listeners. How much does it cost to rent a, a, a luxury tour bus? 
for two weeks. Okay. So now you got a, a line of buses pulling in. Who's paying for that? They're, pro- they're professional rioters, not protesters. We see this in city after city after city. They are not people are there to protest. They're there to take advantage of an opportunity to riot. That's what Antifa is, by all means necessary. We can, we can go from Portland to Seattle. We can go to Louisville. We can go to Atlanta. We can go to Minnesota. We can go around the entire country. Charlottesville. What is consistent about Antifa is their militant trust, their militant level of organization, and their militant deployment of force by whatever means necessary to get their point across. There is nothing positive about them. President Biden is shameful in his comments. If you are not willing to recognize the truth, then get out of office because we don't need you. And they are a group to be reckoned with because they're not only are they promoting more division in this country, but they promote violence for whatever they feel their message is they want to get across. That's Antifa. And it's an AstroTurf group where you said, because I, I recall, um, because I you know, happen to know you know people in the police force when it came to the Tamir Rice situation, there's a lot of, sto- lot of news about Tamir Rice that people don't realize. And when that the protests were happening in 2014, you were noticing that a lot of the signs that there was a little thing in the corner that said Revcom, which are the revolutionary communists. And these aren't people that are from the suburbs of Cleveland that were protesting. They were bust in there, like you said. They're from all over the country. They're what we used to call rent-a-mobs. And right. they were, it, this has been a problem, but we're not, it's almost like either we're not allowed to talk about it or it doesn't exist. And that, that they're throwing Molotov cocktails into federal buildings, yet all I hear about is January 6th, where a number of nutcases, who weren't armed, by the way, went in there and sat on Nancy Pelosi's desk and one had Viking horns. I'm not saying that that wasn't, that, that that was good. I'm not saying that at all. But I hear about January 6th, January 6th, January 6th, and I'm like, you just have to look outside and see places. I, I can go outside the studio right now and find places that are still boarded up from last summer's riots. And the, the, this isn't an, uh, uh, this wasn't an organic thing. This wasn't a grassroots protest. And yet I have to sit here and still talk for s- the last six plus months of January 6th. I, I, I just don't get what is going on. And, you know, I, I mean, please enlighten me as to like, what am I supposed to believe here? Well, Tony, let's let's just look at it again. Let's just go to the basics. When you ask the question, who is responsible? Let's look at who's responsible. So if we want to look at President Trump, let's look at President Trump. And, and I invite everyone to do this. Get the transcript. It's online of his speech that he made that was called insightful and inciting a riot. Get it. Read it. I beseech you, because when you read it, you will find there was nothing insightful about it. That's a fact, but I I implore everyone that's watching and listening, read it for yourself. That's it. Number two, who's responsible for the capital falling? Well, again, let's look at the fact. How many people realize that the U.S. Capitol Police is the only federal law enforcement agency that reports to who? It reports to Congress. 
Congress is responsible for the recruitment, the selection, the training, and the policy and procedures of the U.S. Capitol Police. Congress, no one else. Don't report to the president, report to Congress. Congress made the physical security. Congress made, it was the sergeant at arms that made the decision not, not to prepare based on FBI intelligence provided 48 hours ahead of time in writing. It was Congress that made that. I'm not making that up, Tony. That is the way our system of laws work. So if we want to point a finger, let's at least be accurate and, and let's not be delusional. Nancy Pelosi brought in the sergeant at arms, period. She dropped the ball. She pointed the finger. And at the end of the day, what we're left with is we're left with this myriad of mistakes, loss of life, prosecutorial misconduct that's going on right and left, looking for people to point the finger at instead of looking at the truth. Yeah. And the truth is that the U.S. Congress, by means of the sergeant at arms, knew 48 hours before via the FBI this was going to happen. They did not prepare. They did not present an exterior perimeter. And consequently, this happened. Mm-hmm. That's a fact, Tony. Yet we're, it's, we're still hearing about insurrection, which, you know, nobody. the only person who had arms was <laughs> the, the cop that we don't know about who shot Ashley Babbitt heading into the building. Now, should she have been going in there? We all know, no, it shouldn't have happened. But we keep hearing about that. But we... Remember the story of Steve Scalise on the baseball field at the practice? He gets shot by somebody who, by the way, avid Antifa member, avid somebody who aligns politically with the Bernie Sanders movement, that wing of the the progressive party, shoots, you know, the the whip in uh, Steve Scalise, almost kills him because he had a, I think he hit a vein or something, almost bled out. And yet we stopped hearing about it maybe two hours after the baseball game happened, after it happened. And it's it really was just a disgusting... And I guess that's probably the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go here, because I know you're busy, is the perception that's been going on in media when we talk about certain things that we keep hearing so much about. So we heard Charlottesville, Charlottesville, good people on both sides. Uh, we hear about January 6th. We hear about... Um, uh, uh, Sandy Hook, and we've heard about um, Parkland, but there were other mass shootings that we stopped hearing about almost immediately. Like, for example, the Vegas shooting, which is another situation where there was major security breakdowns. And the the problem is there were a lot of videos that people were putting up on those security breakdowns on YouTube, and YouTube just scrubs them off, just taking them off. So after it happened, it's the I think it is the biggest mass shooting in the history of the United States that happened that in Las correct. Vegas in 2017, yet stopped hearing about it a couple of days later. And, and, right. and if we do hear about it, if it doesn't check the boxes of straight white male Trump supporter, it's now on the subject of guns. And then now we have to have roundtable discussions on banning guns, of repealing the Second Amendment. It, it, talk about the media, how some stories are covered way more than other stories, why that is, and how that can be changed. Inflammatory. I mean, that's the word that comes to mind, Tony, is inflammatory. Um, when I first started with the media, uh, I was with Fox, and then I ended up going to CBS. And you know what I loved about it was uh, coming from law enforcement, 
And you have an opportunity to really make a difference. You can save lives. You, you can help people. And there's nothing greater than that. There's no greater calling than to help other people. And then I started doing public speaking. I realized, wow, you know what? You could really impact a lot of people positively in large crowds. And, and that was phenomenal. And that graduated going to the media. And then from Fox to CBS, from television to, to radio, you know, to podcasting, impacting on a large scale was great. But what became more apparent than anything else is when non-scripted television became scripted, when there was an agenda behind what each hit was supposed to be, hit meaning each segment, and how fact-based conversation became really replaced by opinion-based conversation. The narrative. Exactly. And you know what? America is advanced citizenship. We get it. You know, we can handle it. But tell us the truth. And if if we if we can look at where we are right now and in closing, if we can look at where we are right now, if we would be willing, Tony, if we would be willing to have fact based conversations about where we are right now, put our differences on a table. It's OK. We can agree to disagree. We can dislike each other. We can say, look, we may never like each other. We don't have to kill each other. If we're willing to do that, we can do it. The question is, are we? Are we? Is the media so willing to push advertising dollars on a narrative that sells advertising and not the truth? And if that's the case, then we're never going to sit down at the table. And if that happens, Tony, I got to tell you what, man, uh, I don't know how we survive the next three and a half years. It's going to be tough, especially when you're talking about narrative. Uh, I, I, later this morning, I'm interviewing a guy who wrote a, or a, has a documentary. Uh, it's called Rush to Judgment on the Covington Catholic situation. And mm-hmm. I thought that was the most, in my opinion, in my 15 years of being in broadcasting, the most disgusting story I've seen is that they framed a narrative around a quick video. And because of people's, uh, because of their confirmation bias, that they just formed all of these opinions without knowing the facts. And it's just like a lot of these stories of we film, we we have these opinions on a situation, and we just take the face value of it at the beginning instead of really digging in. We have the information now. We have opportunities where we can dig into a story, and not just people in media, not just people who work in, for a security firm or, or any kind of law enforcement, the average person has that opportunity that they can also dig, but a lot of people don't. They're what we call in the internet terminology, the blue-pilled people of, not whatever, oh, I have to wear a mask today? I guess I'll wear a mask today. Oh, what am I supposed to do today? Oh, I'll do this today. And it just is a, it, it's, it's an interesting time of trying to let people know that there's more to it than the narrative that is being pressed, push, pushed out there by the corporate press. Of course. Well, you know what? Uh, if, if, if we ever sat down and had a conversation about, you know, COVID and when it started and when it was and, and how it started, and if it were to be fact-based, we knew the answers to those that we're looking at now. We knew those in March last year. Mm-hmm. We knew. But you were, we were, we're getting banned from social media. We were getting censored. Right. I mean, and, and I'll close with this, Tony, and, and we can always talk about this another time, but if we, we talk about, again, the, the conflict, inherent conflict in the narrative and controlling a narrative, if I came to you, if I came to you and, and I worked for you and I was a research analyst and, and you were looking to do a show and you're running a particular radio station and you wanted a survey done and I came to you and I said, Tony, here are the results. It's plus, the, the margin of error is plus or minus 47 you would look at me 
before throwing me out of your office and laugh at me. Mm-hmm. And yet we changed the course of everything based on that number. And that is not sensationalism. That's a fact. Exactly. Safeguarding America. You can read a lot of uh, what we can do to protect ourselves, yourself, in this book by Paul Violas. Safeguarding America, the blueprint, the blueprint for keeping you and your family safe. Paul, I have to have you on again sometime soon. This Look was just fantastic. I'm looking forward Thank to you. the response from people, and especially the law enforcement members of my family. Because, uh, Oh, and by the way, we were talking about guns over the weekend, over uh, when we were recording this, uh, was Independence Day. Shot a couple of AKs a couple of ARs, and I, every time I hear anyone complaining about guns, it's like, well, it's because you've never shot one before. <laughs> it was well, fantastic. <laughs> and you should keep that up. And my bestie, grandfather, and your dad. <laughs>